Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, November 27th, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. I write these devotions on Thanksgiving week. The festivities that await will be passed by the time you read or listen to these devotions, but I pray the genuine reasons we have to celebrate by giving thanks will not quickly pass from our minds. I suppose the theme of the week has inspired me to write this week about the chief reason we as Christians have for being thankful. That reason is clearly alluded to in 1 John 3 when the Apostle reminds us that God has given us His love such that we can be called, quote, children of God. The very fact that we are children of God is the most marvelous, stupendous, unbelievable, and unparalleled truth in the universe. J.I. Packer's thoughts on this topic are perhaps the best extra-biblical meditations I've ever read on the subject. Packer says this in his famous work, Knowing God, about the beauty of our adoption. Quote, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God the Judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Do you see what Packer is intimating there? His point is that in Christ, God is not only no longer mad at us, he also has ushered us into his eternal care and love. The question before us is how does God accomplish such a marvelous feat? We know that God does not look at our moral standing and decide that some of us qualify based on our own merit. We also know that God does not simply look the other way as he sees the stain of our ever-present sin. Instead, our conviction is that God deals with our sin and offers us grace in Christ, and that offer is made to us in the gospel of Christ. And the way we take hold of the offer is not by our works, but by our faith, which is itself a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul's point in Galatians 3. We are brought into communion with Christ by faith. Our standing in God's family is not dependent upon our performance, and this is great news. Today, if you have believed, and therefore are actively believing, in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been adopted into God's family, and your standing before Him will never change. He sees your sin, He knows your failures, He is aware of your struggles and your temptations, and the nature of all of your efforts to obey Him, and He calls you a son or daughter of His anyway. I can think of no better reason to be thankful than this. The God of all things calls me a child of His. I am part of his royal family, and this takes place by faith. I pray that you pause today to give thanks, and I also want to try to deepen our thanks, or at least remind us of the reason we have to be thankful this week in a very specific way. When we read the text in Galatians, the first question the astute reader should ask is, Faith in what? What exactly must I believe to be saved? The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that gospel I want to walk through with you over the next six days. Point to Ponder, November 28th, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There are many different ways or methods to share the gospel with someone. Many of you are familiar with the Romans Road or the Way of the Master or some other method. There are numerous helpful ways to organize the truths of the gospel, and any method that is faithful to the text and the overall biblical message of redemption is a wonderful method but I am going to be using an approach that was first introduced to me by Greg Gilbert in his marvelous little book entitled, What is the Gospel? Gilbert divides the gospel message into four components, God, man, Christ, 
response. Each of these forms an important subheading that work together to share with us the reality of man's fallen estate before a holy God and the gracious act of redemption our God concocted to redeem and adopt us from our depraved condition. So, if we are going to understand the message of the gospel, which is the reason for our thanksgiving, we must begin with the topic of God. The truth is that God is often mentioned and conversed about in our culture, but His state and being as our sovereign is woefully underappreciated and discussed. And this leads us to many problems in the church and world, as well as to a total misunderstanding of our true condition before Him as our Holy Lord. The Bible tells us that God is the creator of all things. In Genesis, we read that God created everything and everyone. From the trees and the oceans to animals and people, God is each person and thing's first cause. He made all things, and this brings with it certain rights and entitlements. Just as an inventor has rights over his invention, and a novelist has authority to direct and dictate the utilization of his or her novel, so God, by virtue of his standing as the ultimate creator, has every right to tell us, his creation, what we can and cannot do. There are several ramifications of God's standing as creator. Gilbert gives us a few of the most important and pertinent implications for us as we seek to understand who God is and how we relate to him, saying, quote, None of us is autonomous, and understanding that fact is key to understanding the gospel. Despite our constant talk of rights and liberty, we are not really as free as we would like to think. We are created, we are made, and therefore we are owned. Because he created us, God has the right to tell us how to live. Some understanding of this is absolutely necessary if a person wants to understand the good news of Christianity. The gospel is God's response to the bad news of sin, and sin is a person's rejection of God's creator rights over him. Do you see what Gilbert is saying? He is telling us that the biblical picture of God is not some removed diminutive being who is at our mercy and who only has advisor privileges in our lives. God is the authoritative beating over all creation. This means that he has the right to dictate to all things exactly what he desires and his creation, including the chief creation, mankind, has the obligation to listen to him and submit to his instructions and commands. Point to Ponder, November 29th, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. The gospel is a term that means good news. But it is only good news after we contemplate and come to terms with the bad news that Jesus overcomes on our behalf. And the bad news is, well, bad. We mentioned that the gospel can be understood underneath four headings, God, man, Christ, response, and yesterday we learned that God is our authoritative creator. Today we are going to build on that foundation by establishing the fact that we, mankind, are his rebellious creation. The Bible tells us that while God has the right and responsibility to command us to obey His holy precepts, man has universally rebelled against His right rule. We call this rebellion sin, and the Bible says that the disease and presence of sin infects us all. Today's text makes no bones about this issue as Paul teaches us that, quote, all have sinned. To be clear, Paul is talking here about all of humanity. He does not have just one type of individual or one people group in mind. Instead, the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that all men have sinned. Romans 5 tells us why this is true, as it informs the reader that we are all descended from Adam, and, in his representation before the Father, and by virtue of the fact that we are the product of his seed, we are all conceived as he was, a sinner. Now, we must understand and embrace the real depth of our sin if we are going to look outside of ourselves for the solution. So let me help by defining sin. 
The Awana definition of sin is exceedingly clear and succinct. Our children learn that sin is any thought, action, attitude, or belief that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things. Do you see how incredibly deep sin is? Not only are our actions sinful, but even our thoughts and our motives that despise or reject God's rightful place as our Lord are tainted with sin. The simple truth is that I have yet to live a day without sinning, and my heart is still so adept at harboring sinful motives that I don't even recognize many of the sins that I commit. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the human heart is desperately wicked, so wicked, in fact, that we cannot even know the depth of our depravity. The point, then, is clear. God is the authority, and we have chosen to rebel against Him. I hope that you are seeing the perilous condition of our standing before God. None of us has any reason for confidence in our own deeds. We are all sinners and deserving of God's rightful and full condemnation as wicked, unfaithful, created beings in His universe. Point to Ponder, November 30th, Isaiah 59.2 and Romans 6.23 So, if we have committed sin before God, what is the effect? Well, by God's grace, we know what God has judged will happen to sinners. The simple truth is that sin has many temporal and eternal impacts. Our passages for today show us, in escalating fashion, what those are in vivid and terrifying detail. First, Isaiah tells us that our sin creates a separation between man and God. This separation is immediately seen in Genesis when God kicks Adam and Eve out of Eden and out of his presence as a result of their sin. From that point forward, man is conceived and brought forth and sinned, and therefore he is born on the other side of a chasm between himself and God. This separation means there is no relationship. There is no person who naturally loves God and no person who naturally, or by his own devices, bridges the gap between God and man. In fact, Isaiah would tell us that the separation means that we cannot even scream across the chasm and God hear us. Sin causes the righteous God to, quote, hide his face from us. And this means that man is condemned to an isolated life, separated from his Creator and Lord. Furthermore, the Bible says that the ultimate penalty of sin is death. Death is not just physical death, although that is a part of the penalty. It is also eternal death. This death is not unconsciousness or annihilation. It is described in the Scripture as eternal torment in hell, apart from the giver of life, and these penalties are what you and I deserve. These truths might seem harsh to the untrained, biblically ignorant mind, but when we consider the gravity of our offense and the standing of the one we have offended, we should see that the punishment fits the crime. We have not transgressed against a peer, nor have we violated the instructions of one who is just ahead of us on the corporate ladder. We have rebelled against the one whom we owe our very existence to, and who rightfully dictates all that we say and do. Just like the penalty for kicking a president of the United States is more severe than the consequence of a child kicking their schoolyard playmate, the consequence for transgressing against a holy God dictates grave, eternal punishment. Some folks like to soften this truth in an effort to make Christianity seem more palatable to the masses. While this might seem noble, the fact is that we have reason to give thanks today precisely because Jesus has redeemed us from such a dire circumstance. The degree that we understand the hopelessness of our previous state is the degree to which we give thanks in worship to God in Christ. Don't quit reading, dear ones. While it is true that this is not the most encouraging reality in the world, the good news is just ahead. In fact, it is coming in tomorrow's devotion. 
point to ponder December 1st, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Sometimes, when I am sharing the gospel in person, I pause to make sure the person knows that good news is coming. I wonder if some of you have read the previous few devotions and found yourself more melancholy than encouraged. If so, you are in good company. The truth is that we are in a dire, bleak circumstance devoid of God's intervention. But the good news is that God has broken into history to take care of our guilt and the consequences of our transgression, and this has taken place in the person of Christ. Jesus is the means of our salvation, and he accomplishes this salvation for us through substitution. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. All of the guilt and penalties we deserved were laid upon him. This is why the cross is such a central component of our faith. It was on the cross that Jesus absorbed God's wrath through our sin, and it was the effect of the cross, Christ's death, that Christ experienced the curse of sin on himself. Some may wonder why it was necessary for Jesus to die. The answer is that God is just, and this means that he must judge our sin. He has been quite clear that sin requires death, and this means that he must keep his word. The wisdom and mercy of the gospel is found in the fact that God devised a way for his justice to be satisfied while offering mercy to us. In Jesus, God judges our sin. Jesus suffers as our substitutionary sacrifice, and he did so necessarily. Someone had to pay for our sins. In the cross of Christ, we see the wrath of God rightly poured out on our transgression, and this is why Jesus had to die in order to save his people from their sin. However, the cross is not just a sign of God's wrath. It is also the place where we see God's mercy. You see, the Lord mercifully and graciously allowed someone else to die in our place. Whereas sin had to be punished, God in his love and kindness saw fit to punish Christ in our stead. This allows our great God to be both just and the justifier. He is just in exacting punishment for our sin. He justifies, a fancy word that means he declares us righteous, by virtue of the fact that he takes our sin and places it on Christ. And having seen to it that sin is paid for, he freely justifies us. This is what Isaiah means when he tells us that Christ was wounded for our transgression and that it was through his chastisement or suffering that we were afforded peace. Peace comes through the act of Christ's love in absorbing God's right wrath toward us. He does this so that the law can be fulfilled and only grace and love remain. The cross is the place where grace and truth meet. The grace of God is seen in his sending his son to die in our place. The truth of the law is seen in that Jesus had to die. No substitute, no salvation, precisely because the law of God will not be broken or nullified. Point to Ponder, December 2nd. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. There is one final component of Christ's work on the cross that must be mentioned. It is the best part, it is the most miraculous part, and it is the part that causes us to both worship Jesus and find our hope in Him. In one sense, the fact that Jesus died for us is absolutely astounding, but in another sense, the act of substitutionary death is not novel. There have been others who have died to save their loved ones. What makes Jesus' death so unique is that he didn't stay dead. Having satisfied the demands of the law, Jesus got up from the grave after three days, and this is the cause of our joy. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we would have no hope of eternal life. Why would we trust someone with our triumph over death, the consequence of sin, if he didn't gain victory himself? However, because Jesus now lives, because he rose again, we have every reason to believe that we who believe in him will rise too. Gilbert summarizes this truth nicely, saying, quote, 
If Christ had remained dead like any other savior or teacher or prophet, his death would have meant nothing more than yours or mine. Death's waves would have closed over him just as they do over every other human life. Every claim he made would have sunk into nothingness, and humanity would still be without hope of being saved from sin. But when breath entered his resurrected lungs again, when resurrection life electrified his glorified body, everything Jesus claimed was fully, finally, unquestionably, and irrevocably vindicated. Why do we trust Jesus? Why do we believe his words? Because he promised to save us from our sins and demonstrated his power to do so by triumphing over the greatest consequence of sin, death. Jesus didn't just die, he rose again, and this is exceedingly good news. There have been countless charlatans and crooks who have claimed to be the Messiah, but only one actually got up from the dead. Many have stated their fraudulent claim to deity, but only Jesus laid his life down and took it back up again as a sign of his sovereign power. Not only did Jesus rise again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he currently intercedes for you. The picture here is that Jesus represents your interests before the Father as a representative of you, and as an enduring reminder of God's provision for your salvation in his substitutionary death and resurrection. Our Lord Jesus lives. He lives today just like he lived some 2,000 years ago, and his life is the greatest reason for our hope and joy in this moment. His substitution was sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and his enduring life is evidence of the hope we have of joining him in heaven, where he currently resides for all eternity. Point to Ponder, December 3rd, Acts 20, verse 21. Hopefully today's devotion will help us come full circle. Remember, we started the week with the assertion that Galatians 3, adopted into the family of God, happens by faith. We have endeavored to unpack exactly what we are to believe. Specifically, we must believe that we are sinners who have rebelled against the rightful authority and commands of God as dictated by His law, that we deserve the penalty of the law, which is death, and that Jesus died in our place, atoning for our sins, suffering our penalty in our place, and rising again to demonstrate His triumph. These things are objectively true, but they do not affect the individual until a proper response is given to the gospel. It is not enough to recount the facts of the gospel. We must respond to it, and that response is articulated quite succinctly in our text today. Specifically, the Bible tells us in places like Acts 20 that those who are to be saved by Christ must repent of their sins and believe in Him. Repentance is the natural response of faith because repentance is both the agreement with God that we are sinners and turning from sin, which happens when we see it for the nasty, vile entity that it is. You cannot truly believe in Christ and treasure your sin at the same time. If sin is what caused Jesus to die, and if sin is so grave that it results in our own death, then to recognize the presence and horrible result of sin must lead to repentance. The word repent simply means to turn from. In this case, the idea is simple. Those who hear the gospel and recognize their natural standing before God embrace the truth by faith, which results in their turning from the sin that they see as destroying them. Not only do we repent of sin, we believe in Christ. Biblical belief is more than mental assent. It is a total reliance upon the truth. When we believe in a saving way, we not only understand and comprehend the gospel, we see in Jesus the only way to the Father, and we rely upon Him and Him alone for our salvation. We no longer strive for our own approval before God based on our works, but we rest in His finished work, and we demonstrate our faith in Him by submitting to His law, by the power of the Spirit, in our lives. 
James says that faith results in works, and this is because true faith in Christ changes the way we see the world and how we react to it. To really believe that Jesus is Lord, that he overcame the grave and offers salvation to those who would follow him, must result in a lifestyle of obedience. Will this obedience be perfect? No. There remains grace for our failures. However, the obedience will be genuine as we walk in light of the truth that we have been enabled to see. Someone who says they believe in Jesus and yet continues in their sin without any concern or repentance is telling you something about what they don't believe. Someone who claims to believe in Christ and yet continues to live as if they are the one that is in charge is telling you something about the Jesus they claim to know. Believers are those who have a confidence, a peace, and an assurance that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They stake their lives on his triumph and his promise to usher them into God's glorious presence, and this confession informs their entire lifestyle. Have you believed on Jesus? If so, you have been adopted into his family, never to be cast out. This is a great reason to give thanks, if I do say so myself.